Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, thank you for that peculiar introduction, Dr. Ashford. It is great to be here with you at Southeastern. I was here a few months ago to do some lectures on uh, Carl Henry and even gave a talk on Kanye uh, back earlier this year during the winter months. It's great to be back here in chapel to be delivering the page lectures. It is a particular joy to be here uh, with an old, old friend, Dr. Danny Aiken, who I met as uh, David Dockery was transitioning out to become the president of Union University. Danny Aiken came in as the provost and vice president for academics at Southern Seminary. And so, Dr. Aiken, for your witness, for your friendship over the years, I'm very grateful. But for this man right here, uh, you are very privileged to have Bruce Ashford as your provost. And here's why. There are, there are times in which um, our scholars in the past in Southern Baptist life have uh, gotten into a cloistered mentality. Uh, and, you know, your three options growing up in a Southern Baptist church were to be one of the three M's, monk, missionary, or martyr. But nobody really knew of you outside of those circles. And Bruce Ashford is one of the most respected theologians, uh, evangelical theologians of our time of any stripe. And I've been with him in meetings uh, across the board, interdenominational meetings, ecumenical meetings, and his work is read, his voice is heard and respected across uh, the globe. And uh, so, Dr. Ashford, thank you very much for this invitation. It is uh, a delight and joy to be here. I suppose I should have begun by saying, how you doing? Because that's what people expect someone coming from Manhattan to say. Actually, that's one of those sort of delightful little idiosyncrasies of life in New York City that is sort of going by the wayside because New York City is mostly composed now of outlanders like me who are going to sort of have the Sinatra effect. You know, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. But it's great to be here with you. Uh, please do as you have uh, opportunity, remember and think about and pray for the institution that I serve. I bring you greetings from the faculty and the students of the King's College. We are located right across the street from Trinity Church Wall Street. If you've seen National Treasure, you know where we are. We're right across the street from that. Uh, also, famously now, we're right across uh, the street from the Cemetery of the Patriots where Alexander Hamilton is buried. And so uh, that's where we are. We are right there on Wall Street, sending students into the belly of the beast, into finance, into the media, into the great cultural institutions, into the great newspapers and the television and cultural institutions in that city. So please do uh, pray for us there. And anytime I'm asked to come give a lecture some, such as this one, I, I think about my, my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, 
throughout the country in various different locations. And by no means do I want to intimate or to suggest that somehow being in a place like Gotham City, New York City, is somehow more important than being anywhere else. But I do have some oughts against the evangelical church that I think would be good to get out of the way as we move towards what I'd like to talk to you about today, which is I think the pos- what the position is I think that we now have in the sort of culture that we have now inhabited. And here are those three oughts that I have with evangelicals who think about culture and want to engage culture. And the first one is, I need us all to stop using the term cultural engagement. And you're like, what? Stop using the term cultural engagement? This is like stock and parlor stuff of all that we have used in our mission statements and in our brochures for all of these evangelical. I want us to stop it because when we say, I want to engage culture, guess what? Too late. Culture has already engaged you. If you think that somehow we pious Christians are standing back here imperiously from the parapet looking down upon culture and that we might condescend to descend the staircase of our lofty theological principles and engage them, you are kidding yourselves. We are swimming in culture. We're immersed in it. It affects us in ways that we have no idea. One commercial I remember when I was growing up that's an illustration of this that I have to now explain to my students at King's because they don't remember the commercial and they don't remember a time in which not every household in the United States had an automatic dishwasher. There was a commercial for palm olive dishwashing liquid in which this fiery redheaded nail stylist named Madge would be doing a woman's nails and she was there with her hands in these two bowls and Madge was talking about this new product that she had discovered that didn't dry out your hands when you did the dishes. And inevitably, the woman would be pleased and and surprised why I would like to have a dishwashing liquid that didn't dry out my hands. Where do I find this wonderful product called palm olive? Doesn't dry out your hands. And Madge would say, guess what? You're soaking in it. You want to engage culture? Guess what? Too late, you are already soaking in it. We need to step out of culture long enough to realize all of the powerful ways it is operating on us, epistemologically, theologically, and spiritually in our time. A second ought that I have against many of, uh, of my peers and colleagues, and I am implicated in this. I have been a part of this whole environment in evangelicalism, I myself am guilty of this, is that we often uh, talk about culture, but we don't actually 
engage in culture. We write blogs about it, we think about it, we fire missives on blog posts, but it is a different thing altogether to actually wade in and do the hard stuff. And that's why I'm the president of the King's College in New York City. It's one thing to talk about what culture's doing and to inveigh against sin and to think back here from the pulpit about it. And it's a different thing to be at Goldman Sachs. It's a different thing to actually work at the New York Times as a Christian. As one of my fellow seminarians, who I don't know, Dr. Aiken, if you'll remember William McKinley Blackford IV from Southern Seminary, a great preacher, used to say, you need to get your hallelujah to line up with your doyaluyah. And that seems to be our problem. And here's my second ought. I am concerned that all of our rightful recovery of reformational principles from the Protestant Reformation that we celebrated yesterday on Reformation Day and our rightful recovery of the doctrine of grace may unwittingly have produced a slacker generation of millennial Christians that are not prepared to compete in the arena that actually does shape culture. Who is on Team Jesus at the top of the tech world? On Wall Street, in media. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing altogether to do it. I'm reminded of a friend of mine his name's Mike Mahoney. He's a film producer in Los Angeles. And to he took some extra work on um, a year or two ago to do the Travel Channel's Haunted House program. I thought I would throw this in here since yesterday was Halloween. And so he took this on and he noticed something strange when the raw film footage came back. He's an editor. And he noticed that this team went out and they visited this house and they interviewed this family that supposedly had paranormal things that went bump in the night. But then the film crew decided that they didn't really think that the house that they were visiting looked creepy enough to be on television. So they just drove around Stanford, Connecticut until they actually found a house that they thought looked creepy. They knocked on the door and said they were from some architectural digest uh, uh, documentary and they wanted to film the house. And they sent it to Mike and the suggestion was splice together the uh, interviews of the creepy stuff with this particular house. And Mike was concerned that he was being implicated in a grand lie of sorts. So with his conscience bothering him, he called the producer, the executive producer of the show, and he said, I'm bothered by this because if I splice this together like they want me to, we are actually prevaricating against the public. And what would happen? If someone actually goes to Stanford, Connecticut, tries to find out this house and realize that this was a fraud. 
And the producer just shrugged his shoulders and said the following. Mike, the travel channel is not for people who travel. The travel channel is for people who stay home and watch TV. I am concerned that that's the church. We are content to stay at home and watch what is happening in the world and comment on it and theorize about it rather than actually create the sort of culture that we want to live in. Hallelujah and do you The third thing that I sort of have ought against the way I myself have talked about culture in the past is we have accepted this trope that the real battle of our day is between secularism and faith, between Christianity and atheism. And a lot of our angst and a lot of our energy and a lot of our debating and our, a lot of our lecture series have been between sort of the new atheists and sort of the faithful defenders of traditional theism. And I will tell you, and it was definitely on display yesterday and over the weekend in New York City, I am here to tell you, having lived now for several years in New York City, full-time, and having been there on and off and in major cities for more than a dozen years, here's what I see. People are not radical atheists. Instead, they are credulous about everything. As Yulia Kristeva, the French semiotician, once said, there is this incredible need to believe, and the real battle of our time is between mysticism and paganism and Orthodox Christianity. We have framed the debate in such a way that that's not really where most people are. As I am on the subway and I am moving around, I don't find people completely closed off to the notion of what Rudolf Bultmann called the three-storied universe, that somehow there's life after death, that somehow we are living in a world filled with all kinds of transcendental opportunities. On the contrary, what I see is people that are open to all kinds of things, and that is where the principalities and powers of the spiritual forms and realms of of the heavenlies, the prince of the power of the air, enter in, in an environment where we pretend like this isn't really what's going on, between it's atheism versus Christianity, rather than being an openness to all kinds of infestations of dark powers in our world. I was recently listening to a podcast, and uh, it piqued my interest because I am writing um, a biography of Larry Norman, who was the poet laureate, and the, the first person to ever try to mix Jesus and rock and roll. And we wouldn't have, had, we wouldn't have this up here on the stage today had Larry Norman not come along 
and written songs like, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music? And so I was interested in this podcast because it was with uh, an author named Peter Biebergau, and he has just written this book called The Season of the Witch. And the subtitle of the book is How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. And people like Larry Norman and others tried to argue that it was possible to redeem pentatonic blues licks, that there was nothing inherently satanic about the flatted third in a blues progression, what is known as the devil's interval. And I think that all that's true. And yet, what Peter Biebergall in Season of the Witch says is that what really made that late 60s and early 70s rock and roll so powerful is that it went whole hog to inhabit a spiritual realm that was open to these principalities and powers of darkness. And so wouldn't it be one of the great ironies if maybe we should have been burning some of those records once upon a time? Not because we're fundamentalists, but because we actually believe that demons can oppress and possess people. A couple of years ago, I was reading uh, New York Review of Books, obituary of the great historian Leslek Kolakowski. And uh, Tony Ute, who was writing the article, described going to hear Kolakowski's, one of his final lectures at Harvard University, and people knew that the great old man was, was getting long in years, and who knew when this would be the last time you would hear from him. And so at a standing room only crowd gathered at Harvard to hear a lecture from this great theorist of how Marxism developed in the 20th century, give a lecture entitled, The Activity of the Devil in Modern History. As the crowd was listening to the lecture, they knew that Kolakowski was a, a, a master of analogy and innuendo and metaphor, and they were straining to understand what his central point of this talk was. How was he using the word devil operatively? How was it, how was it a metaphor for something? Was it a metaphor for Marxism? Or was it a metaphor for another kind of, of totalitarianism? And people were trying to figure it out. And Tony Ute was there and he was sitting next to a friend and his friend leaned over midway through the lecture and whispered in his ear, I've got it. I know what he's talking about. He's actually talking about the devil. Yes. Kolakowski, late in life, understood that to do sort of an antiseptic read on history without thinking about how 
the principalities and powers of darkness are actually operating in our field of view is the greatest mistake that the defenders of God and truth could ever make. And I believe that if we plan to swim in the culture in which we find ourselves, because we're swimming in it, we're not outside of it, we're involved. If we're going to swim in it, we may need to start shifting our paradigm about how we have been talking about this whole business of cultural engagement. We love our typologies. And for most of us, we come from some subset of a reformed theological worldview. We've read Kuiper. We've quoted the inaugural lecture at the Free University of Amsterdam like it was taken out of scripture. There is not a single square inch, right, over which Christ, who's Lord over all, does not cry, mine, right? We've read Kuiper. We believe in sphere sovereignty. And we have loved H. Richard Niebuhr's characterization of the reformed mindset as Christ transforming culture. But as Bob Dylan, now a Nobel laureate, who barely will acknowledge the prize, said on his album, Time Out of Mind, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. And transformation may not be an option for us at this stage. We may be forced to live in what Niebuhr calls Christ and culture in paradox. And that may be a difficult transition for us to make as our influence and power recedes in the public square and as we have humiliated ourselves in 2016. In the eyes of the world, they don't believe us. As Charles Blow said last week, apparently the evangelicals think of their faith as a cardigan that you can slip off whenever it's convenient for you. That's the way the world sees us right now. So what do you do in that kind of environment? Not every biblical image fits, but one biblical image I think that does fit is the Joseph narrative. Because in the Joseph narrative, we see a faithful Jewish young man who is scapegoated three times, not once, three times, once by his brother, once by Potiphar's wife, and another time by one of his fellow prisoners. And yet, each time, he figures out a way in extremely dire circumstances to compete in that arena. And notice... The Joseph narrative is not a narrative of transformation. 
Joseph doesn't go to Egypt to transform culture. Bum, ba, da, dum, bum, bum. That was not the Joseph story. And we don't tend to think of it that way because he's been lionized and he's been popularized and he has been typologized in a Christological way. All appropriate. I love Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat. I look handsome, I look smart, I am a walkie. You know, maybe guys aren't fans of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, I don't know. But actually in the Jewish tradition, Joseph is a very contentious figure. He adopted Egyptian garb. He was not countercultural in Egypt in the same way that we would like to think of a faithful Jewish person. It's not the Daniel narrative. It's not the Esther narrative. As a matter of fact, what comes after Joseph are a series of responses. Joseph is the one who is forced out of shepherding to become a city dweller, not by his own choice, but scapegoated into it. And you have to have Moses reverse the field by leaving Egypt and going back out into the wilderness. You have to turn around the Joseph story. Psalm 78, 67 makes it very clear that the inheritance is not going to fall to Joseph's descendants. Esther, the Esther story, is a reminder that you can be in the big, bad, pagan, secular city and still reestablish one's Jewishness and Jewish priorities. That was not the Joseph story, though. But that does not mean that at that time, Joseph was not a hero for understanding in his circumstances how to be wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. He was not the redeemer of Egypt, but because of who he was and because of the chops that he had, he was able to position himself in a place where he had the opportunity when the people of God were about to be extinguished, humanly speaking, from the face of the globe because he had walked with God in the corridors of power. He had a chance to save, to, to insulate the people of God for a generation until redemption could come. That is the Joseph narrative, and I think that that should be our narrative. Joseph wasn't a transformer. Joseph was a survivor who thrived on blessing Pharaoh. And it may be, we're going to get a pharaoh next week, guys. One way or the other, we're getting pharaoh. 
And we're going to have to learn what it means to serve Pharaoh. Not just there, but everywhere. So what can we learn from Joseph? Three things that maybe will be a little bit controversial, some more than others. This can be conversation, uh, coffee talk, talk amongst yourselves. The first thing that I love about Joseph is that he was, he was a gamer. He is not only the forerunner of Christ, he is the forerunner of Hamilton. I'm not throwing away my shot. I'm not throwing away my shot. Did they listen to this at Southeastern? You know, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. Joseph understood even in dire circumstances, he had a shot. And one text of Scripture that I have not heard nearly enough preaching about is Genesis 39, 22. Take note of it. Here is Joseph. He is in this Egyptian prison. He could have easily sat there and rot away and complained and done his Jeremiads, which, by the way, is evangelicalism's favorite genre, the Jeremiad. Ain't it bad? Ain't it sad? We're being persecuted. Genesis 39, says that Joseph had a different mentality. That text says something like this, and this is NTT, New Thornbury translation. That's actually a paraphrase. Not even as good as a paraphrase. I don't want to offend Eugene Peterson. But if you look it up, it basically says this. In that prison, with not a lot of options open to him, if anything got done in that place, it was because Joseph got it done. Now, can that be said of the church today in culture? If great advances in rooting out corruption and stopping evil and making advances that actually grow the human conception of what the Imago Dei means to be fully alive in Christ, as Irenaeus once said. Are we the team that people look to and say, they sign the front of the check, not the back of the check? I don't think so. I don't think that's how people see us. In my book on Carl Henry, I mentioned lecturing in Norway and someone asked me to, to define what evangelicalism means. And I said, I'm going to answer that with a joke. It means anything you can do, we can do later. We can do anything later than you. No, you can't. Yes, we can. No, you can't. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. We're always adopting ideas and motifs and theologies just as they've expired everywhere else. 
Now all the evangelicals think Karl Barth is cool, awesome. Just as the academy gave up on it about 20 years ago. So we have to be gamers. We have to keep the ball in play. That's what it means. We may not transform culture, but we can be significant contributors and shine a light in the firmament as we hold forth the word of life. One of my favorite books is by an NYU professor, religion professor named James P. Kars, and the book is called Finite and Infinite Games. And he says, we are very familiar and we think of all of life as a series of finite games. Whether a business succeeds or fails, whether or not I get an A or an F on my exam, whether I get the job or not, these are all finite games. But the thing that while we're pursuing these finite games, the thing that happens sometimes is we lose sight of the only known exception to the rule, the only infinite game known to exist, which is life. And the only rule of an infinite game is to keep the ball in play. Our job, I believe, in this generation, as a Joseph generation, is to keep the ball in play, to keep the name of Christ being named in places where it might reach the halls of the Pharaoh. Secondly, Joseph learned not to be afraid in places of fear. We have a lot of fear talk about the future of the country. It's an Eeyore worldview. Every rainbow has a dark thunderclap right behind it. Uh, Twitter is a puddle glum universe. It's easy and it's understandable to be negative. But I think sometimes we think that it's like grade school math, that if we're anti about things that are negative, then that makes us positive. It doesn't. And when you exude fear, The pharaohs and the suzerains and the chieftains who govern this world can smell the fear on us. And we need to let our Jesus freak flag fly. I've learned this in New York City just by osmosis. I'll be on the subway and by the way, P.S. when you come visit New York City, and I hope you do, and I hope you come visit Kings, um, when you're riding the subway in the morning, standing rule, do not talk to anyone. Do not look at anyone, okay? You do not make eye contact. People are not in the mood before 9 a.m. 
However, at night, later on in the day, people get a little more chatty. As you're coming home from work, the work day is done, and if it's maybe between six and seven, people might actually talk to you. And inevitably, they will say, so what do you do? And I say, well, I like to think of my mission in life is trying to get the next generation of young people not to sign up for the church of what's up now. They're like, well, what does that look like? And I said, well, what I actually do for a job is I'm a college president. Oh, where are you a college president? I said, it's down the financial district. It's a small boutique college called the King's College. And very often people say, oh, I've heard of that or I've seen that as I've been walking up Broadway. And they say, King's College, that's, that's interesting. Wasn't Columbia University originally called King's College? And I said, good memory, because yes, it was called King's College, and then it, uh, after the American Revolution, it became not in fashion to call yourself King's College, so they changed it to Columbia University. And I said, so yes, similar names, but the difference is we're called the King's College. And they'll say, what do you, what do you mean? What, the King's College? What's the difference? And I said, we're serving different kings. Oh, which king are you talking about? And I go, Jesus. <laughs> Wait, what does that mean? And then I say, well, I actually believe in, you know, an omnipotent God who created the entire universe and, you know, uh, upholds the whole universe by the word of his power and the, the, the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus, like the whole shooting match. Ooh. You actually believe all that stuff? Now, I have to tell you, look at me. I don't like to be humiliated in public. But it's time for it. It's okay. And be, pro, precisely because of what I said earlier, that we're living in this world of incredible plausibility, of immense suggestion, you would be surprised at how ready people are to hear the good news. As C.S. Lewis said in his Time Magazine interview in 1955, the Christian worldview has far more in common with the pagan worldview than it does the secular worldview. So let's cheer on the demise of dumb-witted secularism and the new atheism, which is boring and closed off, and very uninteresting, and sends people, as we currently see with Richard Dawkins, to Crazyville. And welcome a world in which people are powerfully open to both dark magic and what they would perceive as white magic which we call the gospel. Lastly, we need to see areas in which we might be able to co-opt 
pagan ideas as a means of staying in the game. Now, this is what's a little bit sketchy. Larry Norman did this. When he started singing about Jesus on Capitol Records in 1969, the church banned his records, burned his records, because you weren't supposed to sing about Jesus with rock and roll. So the church didn't want to have anything to do with him. And the secular record industry didn't want to have anything to do with him because they didn't know what to do with this. And yet within just two or three years, 1972, the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas was packed out with over 100,000 young people. And Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson and Larry Norman and Billy Graham had an opportunity to tell people that Timothy Leary's worldview was never going to satisfy them. And they became like the interpreter in Pilgrim's Progress, standing by the wicked gate, saying, this way to the celestial city. Who knows? But because we're able to co-opt some ideas like Joseph did, that may not be kosher to people in church circles, might be the opportunity that will give us immense opportunity and platforms that we could not have dreamed of. Joseph was a dream interpreter. I don't know if you've read Leviticus lately, but divination is verboten. But because Joseph was able to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh for the nation, he was given an opportunity to be vizier, prime minister. And he was there when his brothers came knocking, desperate for rescue. I might be wrong about this. We might not be in a Joseph situation. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. But if I'm right, if I don't miss my guess, we need to start rethinking about what it means in our culture to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Will you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we are reminded of the words of that great reformer Martin Luther who in his morning prayers would always say, we thank you, our Father. 
for the way in which you kept us safe from all sin and evil last night while we slept, affording us the angels of your holy protection around the corners of our bed, keeping us and our little ones free from all calamity. We understand that this is not the condition that many Christians around the world find themselves in, who are beset 24-7 by all manner of evil and harm. May we wake up to our responsibilities for this age and to this generation and confront the zeitgeist in a Joseph way. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus the Christ, in whose name we pray. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.